there's an easier way. All the ingredients are already there. Hello and welcome to the Durham Talents channel. My name is Jesse Durham. Today we will be having another installment in our part one of the book series on R. Nelson Nash's book, Becoming Your Own Banker. Today we'll be covering pages 19 and 20. And where we begin today, he starts talking about banks as we know them, conventional banks. So let's start by saying, like Nash does, that he begins with study of the industry, study of what it's going to take to be a successful bank, to run one, etc. So I love that he starts with study, learning, knowing. You know, a, a verse of scripture comes to my mind that says, count the cost before you begin building a tower. And I don't think that that simply means uh, financial or monetary cost, but rather, what is it going to take for any particular endeavor, even outside of financing, which we will get to. So he begins describing what it takes to start on the process of becoming a bank. And he does say that the financial cost could be something around $20 million. And again, I would say, remember, this, this, this book was written in 2000. So that's probably changed over the course of time as well. But even so, $20 million or thereabouts in capital that you would have to set aside in another conventional bank while we go through all these other processes. So the funding would have to already be there. So imagine sitting on $20 million somewhere in, in someone else's conventional bank while you start the process of contacting the uh, commissioner, the bank commissioner, to be able to uh, request a charter. So while you're applying with the banking commissioner for the charter on your bank, your $20 million is sitting in another bank earning very little. This is going to start sounding like the grocery store that we've already described in our book review. Uh, and while your money's sitting there in another bank and while you're applying for a charter with a banking commission, this is going to be the time where, much like also in the grocery store, you have to start looking for land. You have to start lining up building and contractors because you're going to have to have a state-of-the-art building, beautifully developed. You know, it just seems to be that banks are on the nicest corners and the nicest parts of town. And of course, they're going to be very well kept and beautifully built and maintained. So again, I, I know that I've said this part fairly quickly, but you just must imagine with me like Nash is describing that this is going to be a vast amount of money, a vast amount of time. This is going to take years and years. And, and even in fact, he says the chances are less than 100 to 1. So the chances aren't good for you. And all the same, this, this money would have to sit still for years and you're going to have to obtain land and you're going to have to study the the field and the industry itself, if you're going to have success, because you're going to be coming in as a competitor in an area where there are already well-established banks and uh, customers are already incentivized to do their banking there. So it's going to cost you something. Also, assuming that you become a bank and all this capitalization phase has taken place, you're going to have to incentivize clients to come and make their deposits with you. Well, how are you going to do that? It's going to cost you something. 
And that right there is the key, what I just said about deposits. You incentivizing new clients and customers to come and make their deposits with you because as the bank, you will have to have deposits to be able to make loans. Now, will that ultimately mean that you're making far more loans than you're receiving deposits? Absolutely. You know, the concept of fractional reserve banking exists. It has existed. It may not even be the case today as the time at the time of this recording in 2021 that it's even necessary. But even if we assume conservative numbers and say that for every $1 deposited that $10 can be lent, some, some amount of deposits are going to be necessary, even in the event that fractional reserve banking is taking place or something equivalent to that. And, and here's where Nash makes a very big point here, where we can go and look at lots and lots of examples. But what he begins to say is that there must be an appropriate relationship between capital, and we've already talked about that, like a serious amount of capital would have to be amassed for a bank to even be considered in the application process. Remember that $20 million, that capital that must be set aside. That, that, see, that's, that's not for the building and stuff. That's, that's not for the grounds and the maintenance. That's not for, that must be the bank's capital. Now, the next item is going to be deposits. The deposits are absolutely necessary for the bank. And then next will be loans, loans that are made by the bank. So capital, deposits, absolutely necessary. And if you'll walk this logic out with me, the deposits are a liability to a bank. They're necessary, necessary. And yet they are a liability to the bank. It's that last piece of loans that are made that are the assets. When we deposit money in a conventional bank, the bank has to guarantee us some incentive for us to do so. So let's say they're going to give a percentage of interest on our money in savings or checking. And again, I recognize that at the time of, of, of this recording, outside of the convenience of having a checking account and a savings account, which I do, I have checking accounts, I have saving accounts. I'm saying, I'm not saying not to have those. I would say don't do business with banks, like Nash says, like financing vehicles or etc. with a a commercial bank. But to to the bank, the deposits are a liability for them because they have to promise some incentive in return. Whereas the loans that they make return to them their principal plus interest plus a profit. And those two are not 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 exactly the same, the interest and the profit. Okay? And that's important to know as well. So Loans to a bank are an asset because it returns their principal, returns interest, and returns a profit. Now, let's talk about the First National Bank of Midland, Texas. And Nash does say that there were record numbers of bank failures in the 1980s. It was a big crisis. He does single out one for an example, but he says that examples much like what we will describe here happened again and again and again. It was a real crisis at the time. Now, he picks this one out, I believe in part, because 
he does let us know that at the time, this area of Texas was the richest in the entire United States per capita. So what I'm trying to say is that Nash did not pick out the weakest of examples that could be made, but rather one of the strongest, if not the strongest. So richest city in the United States per capita. Let's go to the first national bank of Midland, Texas. Here's what had happened. They had 1.5 billion, billion, and again, the, the emphasis should be more recognizable because of the time of this recording and the value of the dollar at that time. $1.5 billion in loans, 26% of which were not performing. And when he says not performing, he simply means they were not being paid back. And only $12 million in capital. So here we see the bank has $12 million in capital. Okay, remember our, our relationship of capital, deposits, loans. So the capital, $12 million. That's less than what we've already started describing. Let's, let's make note of that. The $20 million that Nash first started describing how to start a bank. And, it, and again, he said it could have been more. Could have been necessary to have more in capital. 1.5 billion, if we jump over here to loans, 1.5 billion in loans. We're not sure about deposits at this point, but again, when we recognize that we've got 12 million here, 1.5 billion, just do some math in your own time. Figure out how many times 12 million goes into 1.5 billion dollars. I'll, I'll put that on the screen here in a second, probably. And and 26% of that $1.5 billion was non-performing. That, ladies and gentlemen, is an unhealthy relationship between these three parts. So what he says is that the stockholders of the bank had lost 87% of their equity because of not repaying these loans back and also without paying them back with interest, which is what should have happened. Um... He says that they had made these loans, these all these non-performing loans, these loans they had made to themselves for oil prospects, spe speculative oil investments that they had, had made that did not do what they had expected them to do. And in the meantime, they were not playing Honest Banker. They were not paying the principal back. They were not paying interest back more than a quarter of the bank's outstanding loans were non-performing. And when I say a quarter, remember that's on $1.5 billion. Now, it is, in a conventional bank's layout, the stockholder's responsibility to maintain the stability of the bank, to maintain an appropriate relationship between the capital that they maintain, the deposits that they receive, and then, therefore, the loans that they make out of the bank. It's their responsibility, and they were the ones that were not paying back loans. They were the ones that were not paying back with interest either. Now, again, let's start looking at the grocery store example that we've already made. Are you seeing how the stockholders of the Midland Bank of Texas are walking out the back door? And much like Nash described in that section of the book, we'll see the, the effects. So the public found out about the circumstances that the bank was involved in, and then 
the deposits started dropping. They dropped by $500 million. All right, so let's put this into perspective again. $12 million in capital. $500 million that the bank had been receiving in deposits is now gone. And there's still that $1.5 billion outstanding, 26% of which is non-performing. So, yes, this dilemma was exacerbated by the fractional reserve banking that was going on at the time. Again, when you can see that multiples are being lent out for every dollar that is deposited, the more that that is stretched, the more that that relationship, as Nash described it, is strained, the greater the problem is going to be naturally. And this is, in fact, where Nash says, and I will use this direct quote from Nash's book because I, I want to do credit by this book review series. Again, if you've not heard me say it, it's not a replacement for the book. I read the book and reread the book with regularity and his second book, Building Your Warehouse of Wealth. But I do value discussing and saying out loud these things that we're reading off of the pages. Nash said that the idea of fractional reserve banking, the idea that the banks are making money out of thin air, the idea that they can loan out multiples for what is deposited, he called it the world's largest con game. In fact, in other places, he would say that uh, they're lending money that doesn't exist, and that is evil. Well, a new CEO was brought in uh, for this Midland Bank of Texas, uh, but still in two months, it, it didn't stop the spiral the maelstrom of, of all the, the culminating events here. Uh, the bank did go out of business. And again, there were record quantities of banks that went out of business in the mid-1980s uh, because Nash says they were ignoring God-made laws. They were, they were just ignoring natural laws that exist. There was an inappropriate relationship in the amount of capital that these banks were maintaining, the amount of deposits that they were receiving, and then the amount of loans that they were sending out. But not just the amount of loans, but also by not being honest bankers, which we will talk on more here real soon. Now, remember the grocery store. Again, what we're seeing is a backdoor example translated over to the banking industry. These stockholders... Uh, the ones responsible for maintaining the appropriate relationship between their capital and deposits and loans were the very ones who were making loans to themselves that they were not paying back, that they were not paying interest to, on speculative investments, speculative endeavors, we should probably say. I don't even know if we could say investments. But they were not paying back the money. And what Nash said is that by not paying back loans, it can kill the best business in the world. So we, we do know that there's a reason why a bank would go through setting aside capital, procuring quality land in, uh, in, in, in the best place, going through the, uh, all, the, all, the, all the rigmarole, and, and with the numbers being against them to apply for a charter with the banking commission, all the capitalization that has to take faith, place, all the money, all the time, or years of time, 
that has to take place for them to even have a chance to become a bank. We do know that there's a reason why that's done. And it's because that, yes, ultimately over the course of, you know, lifetimes, it can be exceedingly profitable. And that's why Nash says that it doesn't matter. You, it's, it could be the best business in the world, but if the loans aren't being paid back and if they're not being paid back with interest, then it can ruin the, even the best business. And what Nash says is it's up to you. It's up to you. See, the stockholders are the owners of the bank. And, and this is a great groundwork for what will be in the next section, which is how to create a bank that, unlike, unlike what we've heard about before. So the commercial banks show us just how time-consuming, costly, but yet also how very, very profitable they can be in the long range. And yes, there is an easier way to build a privatized banking system that you and I can own, that we can control, but there are going to be these rules, these laws that need to be adhered to if we are to be successful in that, because even the best business in the world can be ruined. Now, I'll go ahead and drop the hint that participating, meaning dividend paying, whole life insurance with mutual companies is the tried and true. And by tried and true, I mean it's over a 200-year-old industry, 200-year-old industry. We're talking about centuries now. Tried and true industry that offers products that we can use to build a privatized banking system. So that's probably all that I'll say about that right now. Let me describe to you a very important element as we look at the conventional banking system. And in contrast, what it can look like to build a privatized banking system that we own and control. Here's the example that Nash gives us. A sawmill. So at a sawmill, there is a lot of sawdust, as you could imagine, right? Now, what he says is that sawdust in and of itself is not very valuable, not very useful for much. It's, it's the, the wood that's being cut up for lumber or what have you that is the product that is being brought up about from the raw materials. But over the course of time, obviously, a use has been looked for for all the massive amounts of sawdust that are created. Now, these sawmills run machinery on electricity, for example. Now, sawdust is not very valuable in and of itself, but what it can do is very valuable. Sawdust makes an immense amount of heat when burned. So here's what happened. The sawmills figured out that if they could burn the sawdust, that it would create massive amounts of heat, and that massive amount of heat could be used to generate electricity. So much like electricity is, is generated different ways from natural gases or water or what have you, the immense heat produced from sawdust can create electricity. So now here we have a constant supply of a material that's not very valuable outside of it can be burned to produce a massive amount of heat that can be turned into energy, electricity, now the question is, is 
what does the sawmill do? Do they ben, begin building a, a, a system that will capture and distribute this energy somewhere? Because they're going to use the electricity that they need to run the facility if they can. You know, because again, the sawdust is at hand. It's a byproduct of what it is that they are already doing. So it makes sense to be able to use it for their own purposes. But let's say that more electricity was produced than they even needed to be able to run the entire sawmill. So now what we're seeing is cogeneration. This sawmill produces sawdust. The sawdust can produce heat. The heat can produce electricity. The electricity is used by the sawmill for its own intended purposes. But when there is an abundance of this electricity, the question is now, well, what do we do with the excess? Well, instead of going through and dealing with the the, the overhead, the capitalization, the, the strain and stress of building somewhere to distribute this electricity, why not just tap into a system that is already present? Why not just tap into the distribution system that's already present for the rest of the world? Now the sawmill can produce all of the electricity necessary for their own production, for their own use, and with the excess, it can now be sold simply by tapping into the distribution system that is already in place. So follow what I'm saying here. In looking at conventional banks, what's necessary to go into obtaining one, how that can be run into the ground, even if they're the best business in the world, how that can be run into the ground, the dangers that are there, but also the immense profitability that is also there. Why not consider cogeneration? Why not consider how to use a system that's already in place and how we can tap in, in into that system privately with control, with private ownership ourselves to account for our need of banking, our need of finance in our lives, in our business, in our investing, whatever it is that we're already doing. How can we tap into a system that already exists? What entity will that be? Well, like Nash says in this section, it's going to be participating whole life insurance with mutual companies because all the ingredients are already there. And we'll discuss more about that in our next segment. So if this has been helpful, let me know in the comments if you would like to carry on this conversation about how to make your own privatized banking system for your family, for your household, for your investing, you can reach me at 828-817-4223 or you can email durhamtalents at gmail.com. This has been a great pleasure for me. I look forward to our next conversation. Have a great day. Take care. That's a byproduct from uh, from manufacturing from making wood.